homosexuality, idolatry, abortion, murder, waste, nakedness, immodesty, deceit, immorality. Jesus saves sinners if they repent. But the one thing is, the sign wasn't big enough to put all mark. There's a lot more. Like what? Hypocrisy and all. There's one I mentioned something today, witchcraft. And these prostitutes that are running around capital this week, prostitution. Immorality, that's covered in immorality and a lot of other things. A solitary protester on the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. last June. Almost utterly ignored by the passing thousands, he seemed quite undeterred by their indifference. Do you think Congress will do anything about this? So why do you walk up and down here with your placard then? Isaiah 6 says, he told Isaiah, he said, go tell the people. He said, they won't hear it, but tell them anyway. And, and so Isaiah, Isaiah said, how long? And God told him, he said, till the cities be waste and the streets be desolate. And how long have you been doing it? The cities uh, aren't waste week. yet. This will be the fourth week coming And up. how long are you going to? Never know. All day long? Today I'll be here till four o'clock. But it's just warned America. This, this is the best pulpit in the world. Mm-hmm. People all day long, thousands of people come up and down here. What religion are you? I'm a Christian. A preacher? A Christian. A Christian. I mean, a Christian. Do you preach? God, I'm preaching here. God only has one religion. Have you preached before? Yeah, in church. How do you make a living? Work for a living. But how do you work if you stand here all day? I worked all winter and saved my money so I could come here. <laughs> I see. Don't cost much if you don't keep over to Jones. You know, even most preachers got to get paid. they got to keep up with the Jones. they got to have nice homes, nice cars, nice everything. You don't believe in any of that? I don't believe you got to live like to keep up with the Jones. That's covetous. That's one of the words up there, covetous. You think the Americans should lead a more simple life? I sure do. Most Americans, right? if you ever cut the electric off, why, they wouldn't know what to do, would they? They the electric can open, electric meat, uh, meat cutter, electric char- uh, sharpeners, and all these things. What would they do? They'd be in trouble. But you don't want them all to go uh, back to the woods, do you? I don't know. I think they're happier, don't you? I mean, I don't want them to do nothing. I want them to get right with God. If they can, if they can live in luxury and be right with God, all right. But usually they don't. Usually the richer they get, the less, the more they forget God. There was a, a scripture in the Old Testament that made the statement that says, watch, lest when you get full, you forget where you got it from. A voice possibly crying in the wilderness. But the lone protester may have coined a slogan for the modern American, live in luxury and be right with God. Maybe, after all, the camel can fit through the eye of the needle. I was in Washington during the summer as a guest of the Wally Byam Foundation. Wally was a man who travelled and who believed that the best chance for a peaceful future lay in nation-meeting nation. He set up his foundation to implement that aim. So I found myself one of a group of broadcasters and newsmen from 19 countries who gathered in the American capital last June. We were given massive American cars and trailers, and our mission was to spend a month driving clear across the United States to Seattle on the West Coast. Before leaving the District of Columbia, we had to see the hub of the American wheel, the city of Washington. We got on a tour bus. To the right, Art Gallery, Cork Gallery of Art. The old castle approaching now on the right was the original Smithsonian. There are now a number, at least eight Smithsonians on the mall. Museum doesn't house but one exhibit now. It's in the main lobby area. The rest of the buildings used as offices. Our next stop will is where you will be going to the Smithsonian. Smithsonian is named after James Smithson, an Englishman. 
fact, the Queen of England will be in Washington in July. There'll be a dinner at this building honoring James Smithson and Smithsonian Museums. This is our first stop. No automobile will be brought here in 15 to 20 minutes. From here, you go to the Hirschhorn or the Museum of Arts and Industries, the Smithsonian, right here, right now, or the Cork Gallery of Art, or the Old Smithsonian. Fifteen or twenty minutes to take in eight Smithsonians and a couple of assorted galleries. I didn't attempt it. The marble and granite centre of Washington is a monument built by man to his own greatness, and while much of it is functional, it seems to have been built to dazzle the tourists who ebb and flow around it in their tens of thousands, listening intently to the spiel of the guides. I strayed only a little off the tourist track into the headquarters of the FBI, There I met a succession of agents, all well-groomed, conservatively dressed, soft of voice and manner. They were men turned out in the mould that J. Edgar Hoover cast. In their soft voices they assured me one after the other that I could record nothing whatsoever within the walls of the FBI building. In my softest voice I kept insisting that I had to record that it was my job. After long negotiation and consultation with their seniors they relented. I had always wondered about their alleged uncanny accuracy with firearms, so I asked to see some shooting. They inquired among themselves if anyone was available, and they found that Russell was. Russell arrived on the firing point just as we did. One of our special agents will fire for you today. He'll fire a sidearm and a shoulder weapon. First, the sidearm will be fired from the hip. Notice it's a rapid cadence, but the accuracy is there. While he's reloading, he'll move the target downrange. The greater distance will necessitate using the sights. Shooting from the hip, he did not use the sights. Now he will bring the weapon up to eye level using the same stance, which we call point shoulder shooting. Cadence is a little slower, but you'll see the accuracy is still there. Now I pick up the shoulder weapon. Today it's a Thompson submachine gun. You'll load it with a magazine of 30 rounds. Bring it to the shoulder and fire one round at a time, semi-automatic fire. Change the fire control level, level lever to full automatic, fire in bursts of two or three. And a final blast, full automatic. At this stage, the lights came up behind the target, and there were about 40 holes in it, all in the region of the heart. The agent on the firing point turned round, and with a disarming simplicity, asked, Any questions? The FBI have a range of technological aids to solving crime that stretch the imagination. They must be close to producing the $6 million man or the bionic woman. They also have a macabre museum of criminal America, When I was there, a busload of children in California had been kidnapped, so this exhibit was both apposite and poignant. All right, the particular case we have uh, on tape here for you, what it is is a young lady was kidnapped by two men, and a uh, phone call the young lady's lady's father. 
Alright, there were a total of three phone calls made. We have the first on tape here for you. And it's just to give you some idea of what may occur in a kidnapping type case. Right, press the button. Okay, start side. I'm the man that has your daughter. The man who has your daughter. It is. Uh, I just want you to know that she's perfectly alright. And that she will be. Where can we pick her up? Uh, just a minute. Well, it depends upon how much he's worth to you. What do you want? Anything you That's say? That's all I can give. How about a quarter million? I haven't got that kind of... All right, now you tell me what time you got. Fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. All right, I'll call you back tomorrow. I'll let you know more. Okay, this is the first of three phone calls. We don't have a second or third because of the time factor and some of the language used. But these men, these kidnappers in this case, were eventually apprehended, and this tape you heard was used in the conviction of the, their conviction in court. After Washington, we started moving west, 29 large cars pulling 29 even larger trailers. On the interstate highways, you can drive from coast to coast without ever having a car cross your front. Underpasses and flyovers, excess roads and exits are so engineered that the incessant traffic is never interrupted. This is the modern version of the westward trek of the covered wagon train. But the trail now is marked not by the skeletons of horses and cattle, but by the shucked-off tires of the giant lorries, the 18-wheelers that roar across the continent. The interstates, uh, they go through St. Louis, go through the uh, mostly the center of the town. There is a beltway around St. Louis, but many of the, of the interstates go right through the center of the town. And the traffic on them is incredible. And it's not only incredible because of the volume of traffic, but because of the volume of the heavy traffic big, tremendous 18-wheelers that go through there. And when I go through there, <laughs> and these 18-wheelers come passing me on both sides with their engines way up higher than my head when I'm in a car, and the roar of their 18 tires beating those pavements on both sides of me until I can't hear myself think for the din, it scares the living heck out of me, if you want to know the truth. And... Moreover, they'll be in front of you so that you, you can't see which uh, exit or which exchange you're supposed to make and where you're rooted, and you can pass it. It scares the living daylights out of me, if you want to know the truth, and I do as little of it as possible. The drivers of the big trucks, whether they are empty or fully laden, pay only token attention to the speed limit of 55 miles an hour. They have deadlines to meet, and their employers aren't interested in excuses. So the truckers use their citizens' band radios to evade the law. Uh, breaker 1-9, this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, Big Ben? Come on. Uh, yeah, 10-4, Big Ben, for sure, for sure. By golly, it's clean, clear to Flagtown. Come on. Yeah, that's a big 10-4 there, Big Ben. Yeah, we definitely got the front door, good buddy. Mercy sakes alive, looks like we got us a convoy. The CB radio has an effective range of about 10 miles, and once a smoky is sighted, word passes back, and you'll see a whole line of trucks signalling simultaneously that they are pulling in out of the fast lane. They throttle back and pass the police at a decorous 50 miles an hour. A mile further on, the indicators flash again, the hammer is put down, and the fast lane vibrates again to the roar of the juggernauts. Of course, the police aren't fools. They know that this happens. Do they care? I asked a patrolman in Buffalo, Wyoming. You're at a car, 
If somebody calls us from the highway and says there's an accident out there or something like this, we can cut our response time down by 50%. You carry the CB radio, and um, about one million Americans also carry oh, yeah. CB radio, and the main purpose to which they put it is to find out where you people where we're are. Where at, right? Yeah. And if you're not at where they're at, they'll do 75 miles an hour. Uh, a lot of the time, yeah. You don't worry about this? Oh, no. If they're going to do it, they're going to do it. Uh, and you feel it's uh, an actual advantage to I you? I think the CB's an advantage because they'll start talking back and forth where we're at. And uh, one car going back and forth on one stretch of highway, they've got those truckers hollering, we're all over, and everybody starts driving 55 because they don't know where we're at. Well, do you work out ways to fool them, you do? Yeah. <laughs> you come in off side roads? Uh, that and some of the patrolmen, and I personally don't think it's right, will set up, one guy will say, set up at 54-mile marker, and the next guy three miles up, and they'll get talking back and forth, and uh, they'll say, there's no Smokies out here, put the hammer down. And everybody will go back up to 75, and then they're on radar. <laughs> So there's ways of getting around it. I think it's a little chicken myself because you're setting him up. But he was doing it before, so uh, personally I would But from my it. experience, when one starts going 75, you'll have 20 of them yeah, streamed right. by at 75. How do you stop all those? You book the lot? You can't get them all, but uh, if he sees you getting one, he'll usually slow down, and pretty soon he's going to be the next one. And that's what you're trying to get them to do anyway, slow down. Yeah, that's the main thing. I could care less about the revenue. The city and the state want it. The speed limit was imposed at the time of the petrol crisis in an effort to economise on fuel. The need for such economy, at least in the United States, is largely past, but the slower traffic has led to such a remarkable decline in the number of road accidents that there's little chance of it ever being repealed. Lest anything I have said might give an impression of recklessness on the part of American drivers, might I say that this is utterly false. To my mind, they're incomparably the best drivers in the world, both expert and courteous. Never once in over 3,000 miles of driving was I put at risk by another driver. To them, the car seems to be an extension of themselves, and they drive as naturally as we walk. Even in their fierce winters, they drive with confidence. How dangerous is uh, driving here in the winter, when you have heavy snow? Uh, to local people, it's really not too bad. Local you people are change, used to it. Change in your vehicles? That's correct. Change the vehicles and uh, a lot of uh, four-wheel drive vehicles in the area. Uh, local people don't have too much trouble. Uh, our, our main trouble here is with uh, uh, outside people coming in to the snow area, people that aren't used to it. That was Dale Leslie, a welder from Somerset, Pennsylvania. He probably represents the average man, if there is such an animal anywhere and I asked him some very personal questions. Could you tell me, this may seem a very direct question, what kind of money do you earn? Uh, at the present time, I'm making uh, $6.30 an hour. 
Mm, you work about 40 hour a week? Uh, right now, working 45 hour a week. Normally, 40 hour a week. We have a little rush on now, we're working 45 hours. So you take home $300? Uh, uh, we paid in a two week period, roughly uh, $400 in two weeks. 400 Is that what tax paid? That's what tax paid, correct. You take home 400 Correct. The tax is deducted out of that, yes. Well, now this will give you a very good standard of living. That's correct. Do you have your own house? Yes, I do. You're on your own car? Right. Does your wife run one? Yeah, I have uh, two automobiles. I have one and she has one, yes. And uh, do you have money in the bank? Small amount, yeah. And will this apply to people generally around here? That's that's correct. It's about the average wage in this part of the country. Uh, uh, you'll find uh, uh, some uh, employers pay some more and some pay less. But it gives you a comfortable life here. That's in. correct, yes. Very comfortable. Hmm. This is farming country around here. That's Great correct. Correct. Farming uh, country and the mining. Yeah. And it's very like Ireland, indeed, all the greenery. Uh, it's, uh, I feel as if I'm at home driving through this part of the country. Uh, do the farmers do well here? Very well. It's a very good farming area. Correct. Yeah. Do you get very severe winters? Uh, this county is uh, known to be one of the uh, more severe winter counties of the state of Pennsylvania. What does that mean? Do you get snowed up? Uh, quite a bit of snow, yes. The average, uh, oh, I'd say in a year, uh, the average over the last, uh, I'd say 50 years, I think is about 80 inches. Uh, right here in Somerset County, uh, snow falls approximately eight months out of the year. Now, it doesn't always lay on the ground eight months, but it will it'll start snowing in uh, October and maybe snow up until May <coughs> or June. Uh, but uh, you, know, you get snow flurries, which doesn't lay on the ground, but it will snow is in the air. Does that ever kill the seeds in the ground? Normally, no. It doesn't kill the seeds. Uh, now, you will get a late frost, which will kill uh, uh, vegetables and, uh, and farm crops that are subject to frost kill. And we get that at home, too. Yeah, it will kill them, but uh, I've seen corn, uh, corn as high as six inches tall frozen off to the ground and sprout out and grow. Farms and farming in the United States would justify a separate documentary. The cattle ranchers the size of an Irish province. The crop farmer who didn't want me to introduce him on tape as a big farmer, although he had 20,000 acres. Incidentally, he had 2,000 acres of sugar beet, and thinking of the drudgery of lifting and snagging just a few acres of this crop in Ireland, I asked him if he used migrant labour. He didn't. He had machines which lifted and snagged six rows of beet at a time, and threw the finished vegetables into a truck. His tractors had giant parasols, air-conditioned, blue-tinted plexiglass domes, and stereo radio. All very practical, he assured me. The cool conditions allowed you to work a full day, and the radio kept you from being deafened. And then there are the vast irrigation schemes, water being pulled out of the Snake River in Oregon and spread over tens of thousands of square miles. At a cost of a $100 a year to the farmer, the desert is being made to bloom again. In a country as vast as the United States, devolution and control are difficult. The government may legislate, the individual states may pass laws, but day-to-day -day administration falls inevitably on the shoulders of the local politician. I'm Vernon Spangler, one of the county commissioners in Somerset County. And you have three commissioners. There are three commissioners, and this is mandated by legislation. Well, do each of you have responsibility for a special area, or do you work in, in a group? Well, we work in conjunction with each other, but because of the vast area of concern, 
we need to divide our responsibilities so that we have good coverage on everything. How big is your area? We have a thousand square miles of uh, land. In and you're responsible for what in that? We're responsible for the social and economic development of uh, practically everything in our county. Uh, we are not directly responsible for uh, fire company or fire protection or police protection uh, or the educational processes. And of course the federal people do a number of things within your area. Yes, so. they do, in conjunction with uh, the county commissioners, of course. So yours is a very big responsibility indeed. It really is, uh, when you consider uh, all of the aspects that uh, are our concern. And what's your term of office? Four years. And you stand for election? Yes, you stand for re-election. Uh, there isn't any uh, limit as to how many terms of office you can serve. The electorate de determines that. Right. I happen to be in my third term right now. So you have to do a good job or you don't get back. Yes, I think it amounts to that much, yes. Mm. The WASP prototype, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, is very evident in the Midwest. Conservative in outlook and politically isolationist, the WASP might very well capsulize his philosophy in the words of the Washington protester, live in luxury and be right with God. But he has done much to build modern America. The Norwegians, the Finns, the Dutch, all inheritors of the Protestant work ethic, tame the wilderness and are still remembered with pride. The, the whole idea behind Old World Wisconsin was to try and preserve the ethnic architecture and heritage of the many diverse groups that came into Wisconsin during the 19th century. Uh, These were mostly farmers, were they? Mostly farmers. That we, By the time the urban areas really got going, Milwaukee did start in the 19th century. Uh, it wasn't really the dominant history of the state. And we will have a village that will portray about an 1870s village that we're going to try and show the story of some of those ethnic groups that didn't have a very strong rural heritage. The people who had a strong role here were mainly Scandinavian, Germanic? Well, the three major groups in the state were the Germanic groups, the, the Norwegian, and the Poles. The you didn't Poles have many Irish here, no? They were strong before the Civil War, but they tended not to leave a lot in the way of buildings, and they, they followed the railroads and other activities. They, they were a little more restless than some of the other ethnic groups and yeah, moved on. I believe that. <laughs> so will you eventually have an Irish uh, homestead? Yes, we will. And I, when we pass through one of the corners of the site, I'll show you where all of the British Isles groups will be, and we will have an Irish farm down there. How many farms will you have eventually? Over 20. Over 20. There will be uh, an area for each ethnic group that we've been able to find in the state. So there will be, I think someone at one point definitely said 22 different ethnic groups. And the idea is that you will have people in costume of the period and definitely. of the country. We want to try and show the lifestyle so that it kind of comes alive for the visitor. Everything we do, we're trying to do authentically. And the costumes, for example, you see today, we've tried to take from old photographs. And obviously, you know, we're going to have to improve on it as we go along. But well, many no of the idea. log cabins and stamp fences, these are traditional. Yes. And they are genuine. Yes. We've taken, for example, the stump fence. Uh, that was just a remnant of all the, that lumbering up there that people, you had cheap land, true, but you had to clear all those blasted stumps out the best you could. So just as down in this part of the state where they used stones, all the boulders, yes. they did the stumps. And we've taken, everything here is authentic. The only things, if we have a log that rotted out or a roof that needed repair, we've tried to replace it the best we could. But everything else you're seeing is real. I understand that this finish uh, cabin behind us here was occupied as late as 1954. 
Well, it was it was lived in into the 20th century. Uh, I think that was the date. I know for sure that they lived in it through the 1920s because you can see when electricity came in where yes. they added little boxes. For and this is just a rough-hewn pine cabin. Right. He added it in three different sections, and you know you can see the way that the Scandinavians were very good at broad axing, and and they had it down. Of course. 1890s was later, but then up in that part of the state, it was almost as like you were going back another 20 years because they just did, weren't in contact with all of the affluence in the southern part of the state. So in a lot of respect, what they did and what, how they lived was perhaps as some of the other groups lived in 1860, 1865. They bought a lot of things out of Sears Roebuck catalogs. <laughs> 200 years of history are simply not enough for the Americans. Everything else they have in plenty, but by world standards they are short on background. So they tend to look back beyond the immigrant ships. My people uh, came from Scotland and England. My, uh, the Grahams, I'm a Graham, and the Grahams were uh, one of the Scottish clans, and I had some Scottish, Scottish Highlanders in my ancestry. And on my mother's side, I'm a descendant from uh, Sir Christopher Wren, of England. A park ranger in Wisconsin told me with great earnestness that his great-grandmother had been forced to leave Ireland for social reasons. She was of royal blood, he explained, and she had married a commoner. That, mind you, in the 19th century. In this way, a new Irish mythology is being built up. In parenthesis, it occurs to me that a possible reason why St. Patrick's Day has become such a three-ring circus over the years is that the Irish, with far too much history behind them, found themselves in a country with too little. In the state of Wisconsin, I met just one black man. He, too, was interested in his ethnic background, but he may not have been entirely typical of his race. Uh, what's your name? Zachary Cooper. And uh, you live locally, Zachary? Uh, I live in Madison, but originally I'm from Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. Yes. You're a, a black man, and we haven't met many black men. Yes. What's the situation with your people, say, here in the state of Wisconsin? Well, they're, uh, you know, been a very small percentage of the population, something like about 1%, maybe. Yes. But uh, from the research that I have been doing, uh, we've discovered that black people made up a large part of the early pioneer settlers who came into Wisconsin. Where did they come from? Uh, most of them came from the southern states. Say, like, were uh, escaped slaves and the like, were they? So, yeah, some of them were escaped slaves. Some were brought by slave masters who had yes. freed them and uh, brought them into Wisconsin and uh, permitted them to buy land and uh, develop their own farm settlements. So you're searching the background of the Afro-American heritage in Wisconsin. Right, right, where... I discovered that they... Had Did they have an individual type of, uh, of structure? Did it differ not, from these uh, Norwegian and oh, Finnish cabins? Not really. There was nothing, you know, you can really characterize as typically Afro-American or anything. And yes. you usually just picked up on whatever buildings were available and converted them into uh, whatever use they wanted to make of them. Uh, we passed through, to change the subject, we passed through Chicago yesterday, mm -hmm. and I drove through the, the Black Quarter, and uh, your people there seem very poor, very depressed. 
In some areas, that is true. Uh, I'm not that familiar with Chicago. I haven't spent too much time in Chicago, but you know, there are some uh, areas of Chicago where there are a lot of people who have made a number of uh, black people do tend to move to Chicago, and there are a number of wealthy Chicagoans, you might call it. But uh, it is uh, most of the depressed areas are in the what they call ghetto areas. Yes, yes. that's where I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do we not find more uh, black people farming, for example? What, you say, why are there not? Why are there not more? I think that in terms of uh, jobs, in the early days, it, there were a number of them who were in rural areas. Uh, but in terms of, of uh, getting uh, jobs, the chances for jobs are uh, certainly more... Uh, uh, the chances are greater in urban areas. And uh, if I want to give an example for the research here in Wisconsin, there were early farmers, but due to the fact that uh, they, the kid children were educated, they tended to move off of the farms and into the urban areas in effort to find jobs. Well, you yourself obviously are highly educated, yes? Yes. I'm working on a doctorate now in School of Education, University of Wisconsin. And is teaching your game, yes? Yeah. That's what do you hope to do that. eventually? Well, I, I hope to teach at some university somewhere. Hopefully the Afro-American Studies Department here in the University of Wisconsin. What's your doctorate in? Uh, history. History and education. Maybe. American history specifically? Right. American history. Emphasis on black history. The sweet-toned bell of a church which, by American standards, is old. As it turned out, the bell had an ecumenical history. The first Catholic church in Milwaukee, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the construction of the building. The foundation stones were laid in 1839, and the building was enlarged to its present size, which is 48 by 92 feet, in 1842, due to the growing size of the Catholic community in Milwaukee. At that time, the 50 to 60 foot bell tower was installed and the bell and the organ were bought from a nearby Presbyterian church. In 1844, the basement was enlarged because Milwaukee was designated as a new archdiocese. Between the years of 1846 and 1852, the building was essentially dormant and in 1878, the bell tower was removed, only to put, be re, re-added at a later date in 1889 when the building was moved to a different site within the city of Milwaukee. It underwent several subsequent moves within the city and finally rested at St. Francis Seminary in 1939. It was accessioned by the Old World staff and was moved here in 1975. Patrick O'Kelly arrived in Milwaukee in 1837. He was a, Milwaukee's first resident pastor in Milwaukee. It was under his direction that St. Peter's Church was built in 1839. He served in Milwaukee for approximately five years. Uh, the original congregation only used St. Peter's now for about six or seven years because uh, the growing Catholic community in Milwaukee well, uh, needed a larger church, and St. Mary's was built in 1846 uh, when St. Peter's then became a children's chapel and Sunday school. You don't know where Father O'Kelly came from in Ireland? Uh, no, I couldn't tell you in Ireland just where he came from. The Catholic Church has had its ups and downs since its early days in America. 
Catholics have at times been criticised for their alleged dual allegiance to home and Rome. They have been feared politically. John Kennedy's presidency did something to dispel the clouds of suspicion, and the Church, as Mary Meeker of Minneapolis told me, is still strong, if at times somewhat eccentric. Well, I'm not a Roman Catholic. In the first place, I'm an Episcopalian, which is an Anglican. Uh, I've known a great many Catholics because I came from Massachusetts, where the population is about 90% Catholic. And I think now, in 1976, that there's a great deal of life in the American Catholic Church, uh, especially in the laity and the lower clergy, uh, a certain amount of rigidity in the upper clergy, which separates them from the others, and a good deal of tension, but it's a very hopeful situation. You feel that the archbishops and the cardinals are remote from their people? Yeah, absolutely, yes. In general, they are. And how did this come about? I thought they were always very much engaged with their flock. <laughs> um, it's always said, uh, and it's been written up uh, as recently as a month or six weeks ago in Time magazine, that the uh, Humanae Vitae... Uh, what is that called? The Vatican Bull? The yes. Bull, yes. Um, separated the higher clergy from the parish clergy, who were more sympathetic with the laity, that is to say the parish clergy. Uh, I think so. I think in the United States that has made a great difference. People well, don't talk about how they live, but you just uh, guess. Do you feel that the ordinary Catholic has a certain resentment of the higher clergy? Um, sometimes they have a personal dislike of a particular man, his, his temperament. But they just don't talk about them much. And as for, well, they contribute less, too. Uh, their, their parish uh, money contributions are, have come down. And, or, or they may just not go to Mass so much, or they just don't go to confession. They're a lot more independent because of the unfortunate results of Pope Paul's decisions, and especially that one. How much do you reckon that the great princes of the church here are churchmen as against politicians or businessmen? Well, I would call them businessmen, and extremely able ones. When I was a child uh, 25 years ago, they were more impressive than they are now. Uh, Cardinal Spellman, for instance, in New York, you knew when he processed somewhere in and out of St. Patrick's Cathedral that he was a prince of the church. Now there isn't much impact. Uh, but they've always been able. And uh, What about Cushing? Oh, he was a, an individual. <laughs> he was himself. And uh, he was a, a churchman, a politician, and a, probably also a businessman. He understood people of all classes. The old tough Irish who became archbishops and cardinals seem to have been very popular men in their own way. Have these been superseded by others now? Uh, the old tough Irish were the spearheads for the Irish in, in, in making a life in, in the United States from, I guess, about 1840 on for 100 years and they did a terrific job. Um, as life has become easier, and these people have been much, much more assimilated, because they speak English, of course, uh, the role of the old warrior, so to speak, has disappeared. You know the city of Boston, Massachusetts very I well. I was born there. 
And you know what it was like in the old days. Now, mm -hmm. the present Archbishop has no Irish connections, I think. No, he's, he's a Portuguese from Fall River. Well, it doesn't matter where he's from. He's from the part of Massachusetts that has many Portuguese. And is he acceptable to the Irish in Massachusetts? At the moment, because of this uh, very serious situation, the attempts to integrate the high school in South Boston, which is an Irish ghetto and has been for over 100 years, uh, Medeiros isn't Irish. He's trying to be a Christian. He doesn't want to go down into South Boston and be attacked by the mob uh, because maybe humanly he doesn't want to be and also because he represents the church and he hasn't got much clout. Uh, the person that's got clout there is a woman named Louise Day Hicks. She's an Irish woman and she leads the anti-integration forces in Boston. She might be the first female archbishop in her time? No. She's a real tough cookie. <laughs> the ballyhoo and the razzmatazz which greeted the dawn of the American bicentennial is getting more muted as the months go by. The flags by now are flagging, the bunting getting dog-eared. A whole year is a long time for a celebration. But there's an underlying sense of arrival, of achievement, and this is felt by the ordinary man on the street. Well, I think it's a very good thing. Uh, our country's 200 years old, and uh, everybody uh, uh, really is uh, in the line with things. Uh, I think... Uh, there's been a lot of commercializing on it, just my own opinion now. A lot of commercializing on it. Uh, uh, some people, uh, I think, are trying to make a fast buck out of some of this stuff. But uh, really, in general, uh, the uh, the public is going along with it real well. There's great pride in the two That's correct. Great pride. Uh, everybody is uh, really proud of their country. And uh, I think that, in my opinion, the people that I think are trying to make a buck out of this thing uh, I think should be more proud of their country than to, to try to use it for capital gain. Well, I'm very much impressed with it. I'm uh, uh, historically minded myself. I, I like to uh, uh, relive the things of the past or remember the things of the past. Uh, and in so doing, uh, this kind of guides and determines what you do in the future, too. You know, we, we relive yesterday to perhaps better live tomorrow. I think that's a pretty good standard to go by in our bicentennial. Do you feel that in the 200 years the ingredients that went into the melting pot have finally gelled? Yes, I, I think it really has. It's been quite a, a demonstration uh, for those countries outside ours to uh, observe, I'm sure, where you've brought uh, the nationalities of many countries together and uh, gelled them into one nationality, really. What is it that says on the Statue of Liberty, give me your... Poor, you're homeless. You're, you're, you're tired. And you feel this has been achieved? I think it has been. It really has. <laughs>